So hear this, the word of the Lord from Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When, sh- when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go up with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All the breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. They say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God. And defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Pray with me. Most blessed, merciful Father, great God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be the Lord who created all light to be radiant and all wisdom to be holy. Bless us now, your people, with your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, with teaching, with the teaching of our inner hearts and the inclination of our wills, with the drawing forth of, of all holy desires. Bless us with the word of truth this morning that we might sing together with the joy of true holiness. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Amen. This morning our sermon is called Joy and Despair. And I think one of the, one of the markers of our, our society, our church, our culture at large, is that we have no idea how to handle our emotions. We have no idea what to do with our emotions, with our inner selves. This is especially true when it comes to our emotions of sadness and despair, right? I just want to feel happy. 
I just want to feel joyful. And so I'm not quite sure what to do when I don't feel happy and joyful. There must be something I'm doing that's wrong, or maybe God's punishing me for something I did, or or whatever. So what do we do when life takes unexpected turns for the worse? What do we do when we get phone calls that a loved one has just passed away? What do we, what do, we do when we find out our, our job is, is being lost? What do we do when we find out someone is sick and they're dying? Well, one of the things many of us try to do is we try to numb our pain. We try to get rid of our pain as, as quickly and as fast as possible because we don't like to feel uncomfortable. And if there's anything our culture, our world teaches us is that comfort is a good thing and comfort is all that we want and, and we'll do anything to get comfort and comfort indeed is a good thing. However, you don't get to comfort through numbing our pain through substances, through distractions. And, um, and so we often think that, that joy and despair are completely unrelated uh, there's no connection between the two. And yet, I think we find in this passage this beautiful, profound truth, this truth that we need, this truth that our world needs. The joy does not come apart from our despair, but, but it comes through it. And this is a process in Scripture known as, as lament. Joy in despair comes through lament. And in fact, that, that deep, lasting joy, that hope that does not fail. I don't want to overstate things, but I, I almost think it, it can only happen through our own despair. And in this process, we find that there's, there's no shortcut to this past of lasting, exceeding joy. And so what is this thing called lament? How do we, how do, we do this? How do we find joy in our despair? We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the way of lament, barriers to lament, and the aim in lament. We're going to talk about the way of lament, the barriers to lament, and the aim in lament. First, the way of lament. When we consider the way of lament, we, we learn that lament does not ignore the pain, the struggles, the experiences that we're feeling, but it actually gives us space and room to bring these experiences to God. Not to, not to sugarcoat them as if God doesn't know. How often we try to hide from God thinking that he doesn't know or he can't see, but he knows, he sees, and he invites us to bring that to him. The pains in our life are not too big for God to handle, and, and, and lament invites us to bring them to God, to bring them before God with, with expectation. With expectation, that's a key key part of this, that we bring our, our laments, our problems, our challenges to God with expectation that he both hears us and he acts, that he hears us and that he acts. And we see this happening in a couple of different ways in the psalm. Firstly, we see this, we see God hearing and acting uh, in with this, this longing and expectation through this robust honesty that, that the psalmist has and and through this robust relationship that the psalmist has with God. First, we see this honesty that he has uh, in this way of lament. 
When it comes to honesty, the, the psalmist does not hold back his situation and how he's feeling. We see this in, in verse 3. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me, all that they long wear is your God. The psalmist longs for God, and yet it appears that God is absent. It appears that God is not answering his cry. I think every one of us, or most of us in the room, can experience, can remember a time where you cried out to God and you heard crickets, you heard nothing. It's as if God could not hear you. And the psalmist is bringing that before God. And it actually, the, the tears, the water metaphor grows until we see in verse 7, there's this drowning. This deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. There's a sense that he's utterly, completely overwhelmed in his grief. And just like a someone who's being taken out to sea, you know, he's helpless. He's in a place in his life where he can do nothing to save himself. His sadness is profound. It has no end in sight. And that's not it. We see this even further in verse 9, these themes drawn out. In verse 9, he says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He's being oppressed by an enemy, and God is nowhere to be found. So in this sense, it's not just this passive suffering that he's experiencing, but he has an enemy that is against him, and God's doing nothing to stop it. And perhaps the most pointed complaint comes in 43.2, where he doesn't just feel this kind of passive dismissal like God is ignoring me, but it seems almost as if he's crying out of an intentional rejection. 43.2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? There's just rugged honesty here that he feels uh, forgotten, rejected, left on his own. He's crying out to God in the midst of his trouble. I mean, that's what we're taught to do, right? That's what we teach our children to do, right? When you're having problems, what do you do? You ask God to help you. And we tell our children that he will. And yet you read this, and it seems as if God is nowhere to be found. And if you're anything like me, it almost, this kind of language feels very uncomfortable, doesn't it? It feels like the psalmist is almost sinning against God. How could you say to God, the God who created all things, who holds all things together, how could you say to him that he's rejected me? It isn't, how could I say that he's forgotten me? And yet here it is, modeling for us how to pray. And in, and in some sense, you could, you could read this and hear it and think, oh, maybe he's just, is he just grumbling? Is he just, is he just grumbling and complaining? Now, grumbling is this kind of thing, though, that what does grumbling do? When there's a relationship where there's grumbling, it actually drives a wedge in a relationship. Grumbling doesn't bring people together. <laughs> grumbling puts a wedge in there and actually pushes you apart. Clearly, that's not what's happening because there's no point apart of relationship. Instead, what we find is that in the midst of these honest relationships before God, in these honest laments before God, we find the second key aspect to these complaints in this way of lament, and that's that there's this profound relationship that he has to be able to pour himself out 
to, to, to be able to be, uh, make himself bare before God, to be in this open, honest relationship with God, he, he's able to bear it all. And so in this relationship, we find that all these complaints, all these things that he's bringing before God in his prayer are done in the context of relationship. We actually see this in the first thing that he says before he even gets to his complaints. He says this. He says in verse 1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. As a deer pants for water, so my soul for you. He longs to be with God. And in this desperate estate that he's finding himself in, he asks God to act, and then he turns his mind further. uh, Here in verse 4, he turns his mind to the memory of what it was like to be in the presence of God. You know, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with you with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. He's remembering his times communing with God. He's remembering the good times. And as his tears were his food in verse 3 and verse 4, we, we find that his memory of his relationship with God is now his food, sustaining him through this hardship. And so we see that, that the complaints couched in this profound relationship. We also see in verse, this in verse 8. That the song of the Lord is on his heart. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So although he complains, although he's bringing his, his real struggle to God, he, there's no doubt in his mind that God is there, that he hears, that he acts. And then we find this, that each series of complaints ends with this profound refrain of hope. And it takes a a strong relationship to be able to hold fast in the midst of these hardships, but to trust that in the midst of the silence, God is there. And it is the context of relationship with God that he remembers the works of God. And, And we do the same thing, right? We we remember the works of God in our life. We do this in, our, in baptism, right? Even when we're, re, when we're baptizing new people, one of the things we're, we're called to do is to remember that God has brought us into his family. We do this in, in other things, like uh, in anniversaries and birthdays. We remember things that have happened in our life. And when things are hard, when things are difficult... That imagination to remember helps to sustain us. The um, counselor, Dan Allender, has this really beautiful essay on the nature of lament. And, And in speaking about honesty within relationship, he says this, A lament is the battle cry against God that paradoxically voices a heart of desire and an ironic faith in his goodness. A lament is the battle cry against God that paradoxically voices a heart of desire and ironic faith in his goodness. See, in lament, in the way of lament, what we actually find when we're crying out to God is a deep, profound desire for God and faith in his goodness. 
And it's in the midst of this relationship that the psalmist can say, listen, you are my rock, now act like it. Or you are my life, my very substance for being, now be that. Do not forget me. This is the way of lament, which gives us space to bring our troubles to God, knowing and trusting that he hears us, that he can handle it, that he acts. And in lament, there is this progression from despair to exceeding joy. You know, there's, there's different periods throughout history when there's profound suffering. And I think sometimes in the midst of profound suffering, we get some of the most clearest examples of someone experiencing a joy they seemingly should not be experiencing. And one of the, one of the places I think that, that I look to see these is in World War II. And we find in the, there's this family, the Ten Boom family, who was thrown into uh, a concentration camp. And there we find this amazing quote from Betsy Ten Boom, who, who died in the concentration camp. And she said this, while she was there, she said this, in the midst of the darkness, there is no pit that he is not deeper still. There is no pit that he is not deeper still. And this is where in laments and in our despairs, when we follow this way of lament that brings our problems before God in this honest way and, and faith and in the context of relationship that we find something surprising. We find joy. We find contentment. And we find hope. So if the way of lament is good, (laughs) and if it leads us right to where we all ultimately want to be, which is feeling joyful, feeling happy, feeling content, then what keeps us from this? What keeps us from entering into this way of lament? we move to our point number two, which is the barriers to lament. And in the midst of a situation that has caused the psalmist to cry out, we find the first barriers in his enemies. His enemies that cry out in verse 3 and verse 10, where is your God? The enemies of the psalmist are challenging his situation by saying, where is your God? Like if your God was real, wouldn't he do something? Right? If your God was real, couldn't he Uh, defeat us and take you out of this situation? Your God doesn't hear you. Your God doesn't act. How could your God betray you like this? You say he's strong. You say he's capable. You say he's the one that brought you out of Egypt, and yet he can't even help you. Where is your God? That refrain echoes in my ears. And it turns in this internal dialogue where the psalmist is having this long discussion with himself. You know, even in these refrains, it's like he's, he's talking to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you sad? Why? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's, he's trying to convince himself almost that God is good and that he is there. And in this, we have an enemy Right? Satan himself. Who isn't this the, isn't this the same lie he told Adam and Eve in the garden? Did he really say that? I don't know if God's really good. I don't know if you can really trust him. Is he? 
And he whispers the same in ours. Is God really good? Listen, if God is really good, would he let you go through this pain and suffering? Is God real? And it causes us to wonder, doesn't it? It causes us to wonder, what if the answer to that question is that God isn't there? (laughs) What if the answer to the question, where is your God, is that he just doesn't exist? That fear plagues us, and because it plagues us, sometimes that's where we end up stopping. And what either ends up happening is either we just pretend like that conversation in our head never happened, we just put our head down and just put the smile on and pretend like everything's good, or we end up walking away, right? These are the things that prevent us from entering into this deep way of lament that even grows our relationship with God. This is a, a very real challenge for us. These barriers um, are no small potatoes. <laughs> and the likelihood, since, most, since you guys are in this room, you guys have had these doubts and fears, and some of you have maybe just ignored it, just turned it off. You know, I grew up in a family where that's what we did. We didn't experience pain. We, when pain came, you, you suck it up and you move on, you know, I... I remember stepping on a rusty nail when I was a kid, you know, working on the barn, stepping on a rusty nail. My kid, my parents gave me a bucket of water, said, hey, put your foot in this bucket of water. I was like, all right. That's what I did. It's fine now. I didn't get any diseases or anything, so it worked. But many of us grow up in these families and these relationships where we're not allowed to experience pain. We're not allowed to express our despair. And so we think that there's something wrong with us when we actually have pain and we think, oh, we're the... We're the odd one out. Only I'm experiencing this pain. Only I'm experiencing this suffering. That's a lie that we believe. And so we were prevented from actually bringing these things to God in the context of community. And then we hide. So how do we, how do we overcome these barriers? How do we overcome the enemy who tells us some pretty convincing lies? You know, I... I think about this often. It's easy to look back in the Old Testament and think, well, how could they believe that? You know, it's easy to look at Adam and Eve and be like, how could you believe a snake? And yet we believe that snake all the time, don't we? So how do we overcome something that Adam and Eve couldn't even overcome? Ultimately, we battle the lies of the enemy with the truth from our ally, from God himself. And this is the aim of lament. The, the aim of lament leads us to the truth of the gospel. And we see that in this refrain here that is repeated here three times, closing out each section of complaint as a refrain of hope. Hope not in our own ability to escape the pain, but hope that in the midst of the pain that God will indeed come and deliver. Listen to this refrain again. Why are you cast down, O my soul, Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, what is hope? But hope is is waiting with an expectation, trusting that God will indeed do what he says he would do, which is save him. 
And the interesting thing about the hope that he's experiencing, just like the hope that we experience present day, is that the hope comes before the deliverance does. Indeed, the very nature of hope is, is that of waiting, trusting that your waiting will not be in vain. And some of the pains and some of the challenges that we experience in this life will continue until the day we die. And that's why our hope, even today, is not in our own health, right? It's not in our own ability to overcome things and have wealth and buy things or have even healthy relationships. Our hope, even today, is trusting and knowing that our, that our waiting will not be in vain and that God will indeed save us. And this kind of hope leads to an exceeding joy. And then we see this really profoundly in at the end of this, in, in chapter 43, verse 3. It says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. He's saying, listen, I don't want the darkness. I don't want the lies to lead me. I want your truth. I want your light to lead me. Not my fears, but you alone. Your truth and light lead me. And this leading, this working through our pain honestly, working through those barriers honestly before God in the midst of this relationship brings him to a place where he's in the presence of God that leads to this exceeding and abundant joy. And then we find and we learn that the way to this exceeding joy in verse 4, coming into the presence of God to God his exceeding joy comes to the doorway of despair. And through our lament, we pour ourselves out to God. And God hears us, and he answers us, and he leads us into his presence, his presence that's full of joy. I mean, this is a, this is a shocking truth, isn't it? This is so backwards. This is so upside down. But it is indeed true. And we, and we see this most clearly in Christ. Jesus, who, as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, sympathizes with our weaknesses in becoming human. Right? That he knows our pain, that he knows our plight, he has lived it. And that there is no resurrection without the crucifixion. That his death, his pain, his suffering is the doorway to salvation and life. This is God hearing our cry. This is God acting decisively, giving us hope that no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in and the roller coaster of life, that we can have joy knowing that God hears us and he acts and he's done it, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now, like many things in life, this, doesn't, this isn't just this miracle band-aid that makes you feel good which is still where we're tempted to go, even though we've just had this long thing of walking through the way of lament. But it, but it does mean that God is with you, that God sees you, that he knows you, and that you're not alone. You're not alone in the sense that God actually, he knows you better than you know yourself. But you're not alone in the, also in the sense that you're in this church community, and this is where we're called to come together to bear one another's burdens, to mourn with each other, to rejoice with each other. And this is the beauty of the gospel that we don't need to hide from God. 
We don't need to pretend to be all good. We don't need to bear our own pain because Christ has already bore our pain on the cross. So he invites us to come before him, to lay our lives at his feet, to lay our our pains, knowing that the one who leads us suffered and died and conquered death that we through him might have life. And this is the aim of lament, to bring us to lay to lay our doings down at the feet of Christ. We aren't meant to carry our pain or just to push through it or to hide it in a closet, but to bring it into the light and truth and experience the healing power of Christ. And in our lament, we're trusting that God is who he says he is. And we're leaning on the everlasting arms of Christ that hold us in the midst of our pain and offer us profound hope and joy in the midst of our despair. May we be the people who can boldly come and lay our burdens at the feet of the one who already bore them on the cross. May we live in the light of that freedom that he offers, exceeding joy in his presence. Pray with me. Most holy and merciful Father, Our God who calls us from darkness to light, it is so easy for us to hide in the dark. I pray and I ask that your spirit would help us to trust you, that you are good, that you are who you said you were, that you hear us when we cry out to you, that you act, that you take away our shame, that we would be a community that invites each other to share their pains and encourage one another and appoint each other to the beauty of the gospel. And even right now, we think of our friends, the walkers who are experiencing the pain of loss. May we be a community that can support them, that can mourn with them. May you bring them comfort and joy. Father, this is so hard for us. Give us courage to walk as the psalmist walked. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.